0: The scripture reading that the sermon is based upon is from Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing upon us now. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you for your word to be preached, for it to work inside us, for the word inside of us to bear fruit, for it is through the power of the spirit that we come to be more in the image of your son. So, Father, as we hear your words, let's have our ears open. Let us have our hearts open so that we may be ready to accept it. Be with us as we continue worshiping you in this manner. Be with me as I preach your word. Be with your people as they get impacted by the powerful word that you give to us today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's soccer season. There's a lot of things going on. And I know a lot of you have come despite there being a game at 11 p.m. I will go well into 11 p.m. and make you choose. Just kidding. But I did want to bring up American soccer just to bring up Megan Rapinoe. She was in the news this past week, and she was defending her American credentials. Uh, I just read an article on ESPN in which she says, quote, I think that I'm particularly and uniquely and very deeply American. And I thought to myself, what does that even mean? And I went back and see why is she, who is she responding to? Why is she saying these things? And there are a lot of people responding to her and saying, you're un-American. You're not American enough. And I, and I what does she do? And I, read, and, I, and I went to go read more about her and she took a knee at a game. She doesn't sing the national anthem and people are beginning to criticize her that she is not American. Now, I talked about this two weeks ago, that this whole debate about who's American and who's what is an interesting one, because we are so tied up in the actions that we try to posit their Americanness by what they do. And so that got me thinking, what is it that you have to do to make you un-American? I actually looked it up. Actually, there are only very few things that make you very un-American. One is that you give up your citizenship. That makes you un-American, because you are no longer an actual American. The second thing is you join the military of another country. The third thing is you run for office in another country. If you do those three things, that is an act of not being an American, and the government can revoke your citizenship you literally can commit murder, and you are still an American. So this whole notion of what you do or how you act makes you American or un-American is quite unhelpful. And why am I bringing this up? Because this mentality has somehow seeped its way into Christianity. People try to define who's Christian and who's not. You smoke, you drink, you must not be Christian. You watch those type of movies, you read those type of books, you must not be Christian. Oh, you're doing mission? They're definitely Christian. So we try to put these labels on people by their actions. You can do these things and somehow garner the status. This is exactly what Paul is trying to argue against. Your works cannot garner you your status. You cannot do good deeds and good acts and then consider yourself Christian. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna talk about works and what role it plays in the Christian life. But the first thing I want us to do is that works, good works, does not make you Christian or even less of a Christian. When you are saved by grace, that is it. And you are a Christian. But let us go into it and see what Paul is arguing for and how he incorporates good works into the Christian life. Because it does have a role. First, Galatians 6 verse 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. The belief that you can do good works and be considered righteous before God is appalling to God. For God has made quite clear in all of Scripture that no one is righteous and no one is good, and that all works are like filthy rags before him. So no one can do good works and claim themselves as Christians. So that's an interesting note when people ask, are you going to heaven? And if you ask a non-Christian this question, they would say, of course I would go to heaven. I do good works, I contribute to my society. I do these things, therefore I believe that I have a shot at heaven. Many times when we go do evangelism work, we'll see someone who cleans the streets, who's very active in their community, who's an upstanding citizen, is a great husband and a great wife, and they do all these things and we say, I can't evangelize to this person. They're better than I am. And oftentimes we'll be scared because we think, oh, they don't need the gospel, they have their life together. But here the scripture says, no, the whole point of evangelism is so that people would know the power of Jesus Christ. And no amount of good works will garner you that status before God, being righteous before God. So my first point is, good works don't make you a Christian And for some of you, if someone were to ask you, do you believe you're going to heaven? Some of you might respond, yeah, I do. I've been serving the church for 40 years. I've attended church every Sunday. I've done all these good things. I believe that we're going to heaven. Now, that doesn't mean you're necessarily wrong, but you're missing the point. The only reason you are Christian is because Christ has saved you that the Holy Spirit has given you the gift of faith, and that you believe now that you are a sinner in need of redemption, and Jesus has provided that for you. Now this makes us all feel uneasy, why? Because we have to grapple with the fact that there are good people in this world that will still be going to hell. That makes us all feel uncomfortable. It's the person who who does to go to the third world country, who sets up wells, who builds up the city, who is kind, who is generous. They do everything right, but they don't believe in Jesus Christ. And that should cause us some conflict and strain because even though this person is doing all these good works, they still don't know who Jesus is. And that should cause us great concern. This also has a flip side. Bad works don't make you less of a Christian. And this one makes us really feel uneasy. Every time some Christian does a bad work and you go to Twitter or Facebook, they say, that person's not Christian. We're so quick to judge and take away someone's salvation by the works that they do. But here's something we need to still get comfortable with. There are some Christians in history that have done horrendous acts and there is no excuse for their actions. They have gone into villages and ruined them. They've committed serious crimes against humanity. And if you look at the arc of their life, they've added negative value to the world. Yet by the grace of God, they might still be saved because of the faith that they have professed. Now both sides of those coins makes us feel uncomfortable. But we have to believe in the grace of Christ, that he can cover a multitude of sins, and that we can garner nothing to achieve our own righteousness. That everybody, good and bad in our eyes, must depend on Christ alone. I just give you one example of John Newton, who is an Anglican pastor one of the most uh, well-respected pastors in the UK. He's the one who wrote Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader. He was a slave trader before he became Christian, and in 1748, he he understood who Jesus Christ was and converted, yet he still stayed in the slave trade. It's not until 1754, almost six years later, does he give up the slave trade. And why does he give it up? Because he had a heart attack. He physically couldn't do it anymore, yet he still invested heavily in the slave trade. It's not until 1787 that he finally acknowledges that slavery is bad and says it's a heinous sin And it needs to be repudiated. 39 years later, after his conversion, that's how long it took him to publicly speak out against this atrocity. And he is not a trailblazer in this. The abolition movement was already going on, and he interacted with many people, and he had to be taught that what he was doing was evil. So here is a man who everyone says is a saint, yet we have to grapple that he is actually a true Christian because He's a sinner and he's been saved by grace and he causes tension amongst all of us. All Christians create tension amongst all of us. The only person who doesn't create tension but still does is Jesus. Even he, when we look at him, we don't know how to take him. But he is a man who is fully God and fully man and is full of grace and righteousness. He is the only one we can look to and say, there is no wrong in him, praise be to God. All Christians, their only commonality is not their works. Their only commonality is in who they believe, in Jesus Christ. But then you ask, where does work come into play? Surely we can't let these people off the hook. Can we say people are bad? Can we say people are good? Yes, I think those are appropriate categories. There are bad Christians. There are good Christians. And we should be free to say that. That there are Christians who are healthy, vibrant, and strong, and there are Christians who are sick, and they are doing bad work. We should be able to say that. And and where do we get that notion from? We get it from Paul himself. We're talking about Galatians chapter 6, but we have to really understand what Paul had said in Galatians chapter 5. In verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. That's a, a little bit of a weird sentence, but he's saying, For freedom, this is the reason Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So here Paul is beginning to acknowledge you have been saved by grace. The Holy Spirit now lives in you. There is still a chance, though, you might fall back into sin. With all your power and the power of the Holy Spirit, choose freedom. Do not go back into the yoke of slavery. And he develops this idea a little bit more in verse 13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Here's that word, the flesh. Paul acknowledges, though you've been saved by grace, that the power of the flesh is still tempting. And there, there is sometimes a, 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 re, a, a season where we fall for the flesh rather than fall for the spirit. And Paul is warning against this. And so what does it mean to sow the flesh? Well, verse 8, chapter 6, verse 8, Paul begins to talk about it. He says, for the one who sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. A better translation would probably be, to his own flesh will from the flesh reap the corruption of the flesh. And what does it mean to sow in the flesh? What does that mean? It's, 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 uh, it's a metaphor, but how do you sow actually in the flesh? Well, Paul tells us the outcome before telling us what, actually, what it actually looks like. If you are sowing in the flesh, here is what your life will look like as a Christian. As a Christian. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. This is chapter 5, verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That is the outcome of sowing in the flesh. And I just want to look at some of the outcomes. Sexual immorality, idolatry, envy, and jealousy. How is it that you sow in the flesh? It's basically by giving in to your own selfish desires. That is how you sow the flesh. Sexual immorality. How do you commit sexual immorality? By acknowledging that there is morals on sex. If there is a sexual ethic, the only way to go against it is by saying, I know what the ethic is, and so I'm going to go against it because I feel a certain way about sex. What is idolatry? It is conforming God into our own image. I think God should look like this. God should be made in the form of a golden statue. God should be a big statue that we worship. Yet God has says, I will not be worshipped that way. But for generations, people have said, no, we want statues. We want to worship God this way. Envy and jealousy. It's the belief that you deserve something that your neighbor has. That you have inherent right to it. And your jealousy and fits of rage is because you deserve better, yet you don't have it. This is how you sow your flesh. You give into the desires, and basically you give in to your wants. It is the fundamental belief that you are king and that you deserve it all. This is where divisions come from, envy, drunkenness, impurity. This is where all those things stem from. A selfish desire to show that you are God and that you deserve everything. So, the question is, are you sowing in the flesh? It's worth positing the question to you all. Because again, Paul is not talking to non-Christians and Christians at this point. He's talking to those who have been freed by Christ and he's asking them, where are you spending your time? Where are you investing your life? Are you sowing in the flesh, making sure that you get what you want, what you need at the expense of others? Far too often, we don't stop and think, what are we pursuing and why do we pursue it? We just get into this motion and we say, I deserve it. This is what I need, this is what I deserve. This is what needs to be done for me. And everyone is subject to falling into sowing the flesh. Just last week, I caught myself daydreaming. And uh, usually, if you think about a pastor daydreaming, you think that I would be daydreaming about me preaching and all these people converting to Christ and saying, yes, I love Jesus. That's not what I daydream about. (laughs) Though I should. I was just daydreaming um, by myself, but thinking about how it would be nice to be in Italy with my wife, with my three children that are not yet born, and how we're just talking and we're eating good food, and they're telling me about how Harvard is and how Yale is and how they want to pursue all these things, and I'm just laughing and I'm saying, life is so good. I caught myself daydreaming about those things. Uh, you laugh now, but it's, it's almost borderline sinful, I would say. Because that is what, even though I don't think about it, that's where I gradually gravitate towards. That is what I want to invest in. So I'm scared when I have children, do I really expect them to go to those schools? I don't know. And so we have to just stop and think about ourselves. What is it that we want? What are we investing in? How do you spend your time? So many people are asked, what do you want at the end of your life? And so many people say, I just want family, good friends and relationships. And then we ask them, why are you spending 80 hours at work? Why are you not spending time with your family? Why aren't you investing in the things that you want to invest in? And people are like, I don't know. You just have to do these things. And so as Christians, this is not a non-Christian problem. This is a danger that we can all fall into very, very easily. And I'm not saying all those things that I dreamed about are bad. No. Go on vacation. If you get into Harvard, great. But the thing is, at what risk, why are you pursuing those things? What do you think is the return in achieving some of those things? That is a question we need to ask ourselves. But Paul says, so don't sow in the flesh, sow in the spirit. Now, how do you sow in the spirit? Well, again, I'm going to do the same thing what I did for the flesh. Paul gives us what happens if you sow in the spirit, and I think that's helpful to see what happens. He says, if you sow in the spirit, you produce fruit. Here, verses 5, again, it says, The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. So the whole outcome of investing in the spirit is that you would produce the fruit of the spirit. And you see that this fruit is all directed towards the other. Paul says this, use your freedom to love one another, to not love yourself. Love somebody. Be kind to them. Pursue peace. Be patient with one another. Show extreme kindness. Show self-control. There is no law against any of these things. Now the question is, though, how do you get this fruit? How do you sow in the Spirit? And Jesus tells us the answer. In his parable about the sower, he gives us a view of how you sow in the Spirit. This is Matthew chapter 13, verse 23. He says this. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruits and yields, in one case a hundredfold in another 60 and another 30. Did you catch that? How do you sow in the spirit? You listen to the word of God. It seems so counterintuitive. You would think that you would have to go and do good works right away. That's how you you bear the fruit of the spirit. But yet God is saying, no, listen to my word. Sit and be still and the fruit will grow. It is not the work that you do that causes fruit to grow. It is by simply hearing the word of God. So let me get real practical. Here are some things that you can do to sow in the spirit. One, you need to come to public worship service. What I am doing now is giving you the word of God. When people come and read scripture, they are giving you the living word to you. When you sing hymns, when you talk to one another about the Bible, when you hear the word proclaimed, the seed is beginning to grow you are investing in the spirit and you're beginning to reap the fruit that is coming before you. That is what you need to do. Participate in the public service. So my challenge to all of you is, and I make this challenge to everyone, try to attend 86% attendance rate at a public worship service. 86%, so I did the math. That means you get one month off or you don't have to attend any church. 86%. It's a challenge. I'm getting real practical. And this is a challenge that I'm not going to actually follow up on now, but maybe later. So just try. 86%. That doesn't mean you have to be at ACC, but don't miss a worship service. It's that important. That is how fruit grows in your life. Two, the second thing you do, participate in the Lord's Supper. This is the visible word. Don't deny yourself of this. When I come up and proclaim these words, this is not Jeffrey's Supper that I give to you. This is the Lord's Supper, and he's giving it to you so that you may grow, so that you may understand what the Lord is doing in your life. This is an essential thing, and that is why before I even came, Pastor David and Pastor Darcy established having the Lord's Supper weekly. It's that important. It's another means of getting the word of God into your soul so that you would bear the fruit that is required of you. Third thing, meditate on the word night and day. Read the scriptures. And you know what? You don't even have to read the scriptures. You can listen to podcasts. You can hear other people read the scriptures. You don't even have to read the whole Bible. You can just talk about the Bible with friends every day. You can get creative with this, but as long as you're just in the word talking about it, then you will begin to grow. And God promises that when you attain to these things, when you participate in the word, the fruit will automatically grow and you will begin to do works that you don't even know that you're doing, but you do it. One of the great things about being a pastor is talking to people and people saying, I don't feel like I'm doing enough for the Lord. And to me, it's crazy. You're doing so much. You pray for people. You talk to people. You're so kind, and you're so gentle, and you're so patient. And you're doing all these things, and they go, but yeah, that's not real Christian stuff. Because they have an idea of what a real Christian looks like, yet you don't know the effect that you're having on other, pe- on other people. The fruit just begins to grow. You begin to serve. Yes, you have to be pushed a little sometimes, but for the most part, when you're attending the Word of God, you will automatically begin to grow in the Spirit. That is what the Lord promises us. Attending service, participating in the Lord's Supper, Reading and meditating on the word night and day, fruit will begin to grow. Don't trust me. Trust the word of God who said this is how it will be. But Paul begins to talk and say, but listen, it's also going to be very difficult. It's also going to be tough. So we need to remember that when we, the going gets tough, that we don't just simply give up, but that we continue trusting in the word. And here's Paul in last verse, in verse 9, he said, And let us not grow weary of doing good. He acknowledges that doing good work is tough. So as you're listening to the word of God and as you're bearing fruit, it's not an easy ride. You're bearing good fruit, but as you push yourself harder and harder to do these things, you will grow tired. And that's natural. Don't feel guilty about being tired. Paul is already acknowledging that you will be tired on this journey, on this side of glory. But don't grow weary. Take your rest, do what you have to do. But don't give up, is what he's saying. Take your rest. Do what you need to do, but don't give up. And here's where I really enjoy it. Because Paul says, you will someday reap the reward. Now, I'm not going to go into all the translations here. But it sounds like in this verse that your gift is the Holy Spirit or eternal life. Actually, what Paul is saying is here is that you will receive a reward for the fruit that you bear. Now, this is where everyone gets kind of... Rewards. I I just want to do good works because I love Jesus. That's great. But the reality is you also get rewards. And what are these rewards that we receive in heaven? Because we do get it. You see, good works actually solicit rewards. Now I just want to make this distinction. When you are saved by grace, your inheritance is heaven. Jesus is your Lord and Savior forever. Despite doing good works or bad works, if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are entitled to the inheritance. That is yours. But Paul and Jesus do talk about some rewards that you get in heaven. And what are these rewards? Now people start thinking about it, like, is there a ranking in heaven? Did you get more land? Did you get bigger room? And I don't know about any of that stuff. What we need to look for in understanding our definition of rewards is understanding Jesus and what his reward was. Because it is clear when Jesus is exalted and put on the right hand of God, he says, you have a reward. And his reward is not a bigger house, it's not more room, it's not a crown. I hope I'm not doing all this just for a crown. Jesus said, my reward is the people. That is my reward. What is your reward for reaping the spirit? What is your reward for sowing in the spirit? You're looking at them. This is your reward. Yes, Jesus gets all the glory. But as we disciple one another, as people come to faith through our ministries, as people grow in the faith here at ACC, we will talk about those things in heaven. We will be talking about how we influenced each other. How we were there for each other in our toughest times. And though it may be hard and difficult right now, we will talk about in heaven with great joy. And with great happiness. And we'll say, this is what it was about. We are doing everlasting work right now and we will talk about it in heaven. No one will care how much you made in heaven. No one will care how big your house was. No one will care that you are a manager at some store or office. All we will be talking about in heaven is how we influenced each other through love, joy, peace, and patience. We need to remember that this is our reward and that it's worth pursuing. I want to tell the story of Adoniram and Ann Judson. They are Baptist missionaries who went to Burma. And here is a couple that began to really understood what their reward was. I don't know if you've heard of them, but I just heard of Adoniram just offshoot, um, just eavesdropping on a conversation in seminary. So I went to go and I looked at them and their story is amazing. Talk about people who had a heavenly perspective. Adoniram, early on, uh, knew that his life was to be a missionary. Now, this was a time where missionaries were not even a thing. No one understood. They thought the the great commission was completed. That is the general thinking Um, in the West during the 1800s. We don't need to do missions. The great commission has been accomplished. There's no reason to go spread the word. But through William Carey, they started a movement, and then missionaries became a thing, and they saw there is a need to spread the word. And so Adoniram followed after the footsteps of William Carey, and so he and Anne went to Burma. In 1813, they dedicated their life to be missionaries to Burma. And for the next four years, Adoniram and Anne, all they did was study the language. So from 1813 to 1817, there's no activity from them because all they were doing was studying the language. Finally, by 1817, Adoniram feels bold enough to begin preaching Christ to the Burmese people. He has a command of the language and Anne is able to speak the language as well and she's inviting people to their house. And finally, in 1819, they baptized their first believer. Six years later, they baptize their first believer. Then in 1822, they finally get more believers, and they have 18. So from 1813 to 1822, they've only got 18 believers. And I say 18 only, because in a worldly sense, this is a failure. 18? You spent that many years, and you could only get 18 people? But then it begins to grow. In 1823, Adoniram begins to translate the New Testament Bible into the Burmese language. He begins um, interacting with them more. And soon enough, he's he's able to establish a church in which they start having worship services. But also during this time, Adoniram gets thrown into jail because the British and the Burmese people fall into a war. And then they throw him, even though he's American, they can't really tell the difference at this point. They throw him into jail for 17 months. So Anne is there, left to raise two children by herself, and she's writing letters every day to the Burmese king asking for the release of her husband. Finally, the war is over, and the first thing that Anne writes is finally, there's good news the British territories will finally allow us to advance the gospel to the Burmese people. She doesn't even talk about the welfare of her husband or her kids. Her first thought and pen pen letter was, the Burmese people will finally get to hear the gospel without any persecution. In 1826, Anne dies. And Adoniram falls into a deep depression. So for one year, he can't do any work. He's just in a deep state of depression because he has lost his wife. He takes his rest. He comes back and then begins to evangelize again. He keeps on doing this for 37 years, 37 years. And to this day, the translation that he penned for them, for the Burmese people, is the translation they use today. Now for the Baptist people, the third largest Baptist um, nation is Burma. It's America, India, and Burma. And there are, million, there are millions now who follow after Christ because of what Adonara and Anne did. What was their reward? Because they had not many here on earth. They suffered from depression, they suffered illness, But they did not invest in the things that are temporary. They invested in Christ and they sowed in the spirit. Their reward are the Burmese people. There are people who will now go into heaven and thank the Judson's for forsaking their world, and seeing that heaven is the true place to be. Judson's, their reward is the people. And when we see them in heaven, they will say it was absolutely worth it. Because Christ did it for us. And all this is worth it. So this is why Paul tells us to invest in the spirit, to sow in the spirit. Not to condemn us, but to show us there's a much, much better thing that we're missing out on. Investing in people and the salvation of others is not a waste of time. It's not boring. It's not something that has no reward. There is reward. So Paul is saying, sow in the spirit, not because. He says, sow in the spirit because it's worth it. Because you'll get it. He says in verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The main thing Paul wants us to do is invest in each other. Oftentimes, Paul realizes that it's easy to love the other. But first, what he calls us to do is to love one another here. This is where we love one another. This is where we invest. This is where we see the fruit of the Spirit. This is where God has called us to. And he says, enjoy it. Sit, listen to the Word, grow in the Spirit, and receive the reward that has been promised to you. Brothers and sisters, let us not sell our life short. Let us invest in the spirit so that on when heaven comes, we will reap the rewards, we will reap each other's fruits, and we'll give glory to God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done. Father, we are all weak. Lord, we oftentimes, without even thinking, will begin to invest in ourselves and invest in the flesh. But, Lord, you have given us something so much greater. You have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. And now that we can truly begin to live for you and to live for one another. So we thank you, God. We thank you that that power now resides in us, and we pray that we will begin to use it. That we will not be scared, that we will not forget, but that we will remember and rejoice and call upon the Spirit to produce fruit in us, so that we may love each other well, and that you that you may get all the glory. We thank you, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.